On the TV series Ghosts of Devil's Perch, we were contacted by the mayor and police chief of Butte, Montana, to try to bring peace and order to the undead residents of Butte, Montana. The police are there to serve and protect. But what happens when you face something unseen, something that cannot be cuffed or dragged out? Police deal with aspects of the paranormal much more than you'd ever imagine, and many develop a hyper-sixth sense that they swear keeps them alive. What happens when the paranormal steps in during investigations? When a police officer is so sensitive they can sense the dead, and perhaps even make contact. Today, we'll explore this concept with two special guests. First up, Scott Davis, an active member of the police and a medium. We also visit with John Frank, a former law enforcement official with experiences of his own. And we're going to get a visit from our old pal, actor-comedian Jamie Kaler, for a brand new Upon Further Review. Today, Student Bodies, a slasher film and the very first of its kind. All that and more right here on the best in paranormal podcasting. This is the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. I'm not going to stand here and listen to this baloney. He won't know. He doesn't stand for baloney. Scott Davis is an evidentiary medium based out of Middletown, New Jersey. He's a former United States Marine veteran and is currently a law enforcement officer. He's been building a social media following with over 200,000 TikTok followers and can be seen on various Discovery Plus and Travel Channel shows. Currently, Scott is working with a private investigation team out of California on a 40-year-old cold case as well as several ongoing paranormal investigations. I've been lucky enough to meet this gentleman, call him my friend, and now it's time to introduce him to you, my little darklings, Scott Davis. Scott, welcome to the show. What's up, Dave? Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm glad that you're here. First off, as we always do, let me thank you very much for serving our country and for serving the people of the United States in law enforcement as well. I know that... uh, Neither of those jobs are easy, and it takes a special breed of person to step into those roles. So thank you very much for doing that, Scott. Thank you so much for saying that, Dave. I appreciate it. I wanted to make sure to bring up your pedigree, because I think it's important and an element I want people to know. You know, I get people that will reach out, believe it or not, Scotty, and they're like, God, stop having mediums on your show. You know, just talk about ghosts and they don't realize we're all mediumistic to a degree. People say, Dave, are you a medium? And I say, no, I'm a 2XL. And once we get past the stupid dad joke, I started to realize, I guess I am a medium in a sense, because that is just something that translates and allows people to communicate. It, it's, it's exactly as it sounds. TV is a medium. Radio is a medium. Print ad is a medium. Being a medium is a way to bring out a message. And spirits have chosen me from time to time to make their presence known, to be seen, to be heard, to be experienced. So I, I would guess that's probably the easiest thing to say, right, is we've all 
got this mediumistic ability. But what, what intrigued me specifically about you is in order to be in the Marines, they don't take just anyone. Now, mind you, Scotty, I also know a bunch of Marines and they are loons. They're completely crazy, <laughs> but usually in good ways. Law enforcement, same thing. They're looking for pragmatic, logical people that can come in, detect the situation, investigate it, and try to wrap their head around what's happening by using means of logic and evidence. The woo factor of the paranormal kind of throws people for a loop. And when you can take somebody like you that has this pedigree, um, our second guest who will be coming on a little later, John Frank, he's got stories and in, involved in the uh, law enforcement as well. It's important, I think, to acknowledge those aspects. Um, you have to go through psychological evaluations, through mental health evaluations to continue to do the job that you do, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Been uh, through three psychological exams uh, and I passed them all so far. So uh, I'm fit enough to be a police officer and serve my community. So uh, that that think uh, says a lot. It's very stringent. I, I want to get into the story that you're working on right now, because this is fascinating to me, but I also want to push on that button, um, a psychological evaluation. Did you get called upon for one of those when they found out that you find yourself to be a medium, uh, to be a sensitive and, and believe that you can talk to the dead? Did, did that send up a couple of red flags to the powers that be? No, thank goodness. They were all just the routine kind of uh, psychological exams you go through. Uh, there's, here in New Jersey, it's very stringent to be hired as a police officer. So they, they really put you through the ringer and make sure that they have good candidates. So everyone was just uh, the due process of being hired as a, as a police officer. So at no point do they say, all right, uh, Officer Davis, how many fingers is the ghost behind me holding up? When all right, let me tell you three, something they right go, Hey, there's no ghost here. Dave, my one of my... Uh, my superiors, I had to give him a ride one day from point A to point B, and he right. got in the car with me. And this guy is a cop cop. He has the haircut, square jaw, square sh shoulders. He is a police officer, no doubt about it. Um, and I was very nervous to be in the car with him because uh, he could be a very – he could be a police officer for sure. Um, sure. And he got in the car, and he just opened up about his very own experience that he had with a paranormal experience and a medium. Um, and it blew my mind. So even a man that I respect very highly that I never would have thought in a million years would have stepped into my police car and spoke to me about the paranormal, felt comfortable enough with me to, to sit and talk with me about it in our ride. So that showed me that there are a lot of people that are much more open to listening to what we have to say, um, especially when it comes from a colleague uh, and somebody who is respected in both fields. So that meant a lot. I've spoken to police officers throughout the years on and off the record that have been open about this. Uh, you know, Ralph Sarchi. I mean, here you've got a, a New York detective, a, a, you know, cop who's dealing with the demonic and helping people get rid of it. Uh, other people that have come forward with this story. And then there are many that have told me off the record, hey, you know, I've got to deal with this all the time. I had I, one guy uh, had, had talked to me, he was a police officer in, in uh, I believe it was Terre Haute, Indiana. And he said, I, was on site at a murder crime. And as we were taking pictures and looking around and, you know, piecing together what was going on, I looked up and I could see the murder victim sitting in the chair. And I looked around to see if anybody else could notice this. And, and I looked at her and just kind of nodded my head to let her know I could see her. And she just clearly pointed across the room at a picture on the wall 
And I walked over and she's looking at me while everybody else is doing their stuff. He goes, I walked over and I pointed to the person on the wall. And then I kind of did the old, you know, drawn the finger across the throat and then pointed at the victim. And she nodded and he said, so this is who killed you. And she acknowledged it. And he said, now he had to go about finding something there physically that could tie this case together without it being a woo factor. He also had to make sure he wasn't dealing with some form of PTSD, but sure enough, the case came together. And once they actually approached this guy, he crumbled and admitted to murdering this girl. So he said that wasn't the first time he had been aided at a, at a site by a victim. And I thought, wow, that's powerful. What a great story. I mean, it's tragic. Don't get me wrong. It's tragic. It's heartbreaking that 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 this is happening. But that somebody so cued in to their innate sense that they're actually picking up on it, that's that's got a powerful statement to it. And that's kind of similar to what's going on with you in this case that you're currently involved in. I know you're yeah. you're really working hard on it, so I don't know how much you can give us, but introduce me to this and how it was introduced to you. Oh yeah. Excellent. Um, first off, that story gave me chills. That was amazing. I hope that officer is listening to your podcast and knows that he's not alone. Um, so basically I got contacted by a family member of a missing person, uh, via social media. And I don't normally take cases that involve missing people or murders because of my regular job being a law enforcement officer. I never want the two paths to have to cross, um, It's just two different worlds. And for crimes to be solved and missing people to be found, you really do need good police work, good investigations. Uh, You need physical evidence, all all the things that you can bring to court um, to prove a crime or find the missing person. Um, However, this gentleman was a little bit persistent and he said, please, it's over 40 years old. I don't see uh, there could be any harm if you can help. I said, "Okay." He sent me a picture of his sister um, and I did the reading. And all through it, he just let me talk. I spoke about landmarks, people that I was seeing, and relationships that I felt were important to speak about. Uh, during, the inve- during the reading, he didn't say much. At the end, I told him I'd be happy to do more. And he said, okay. And that was the last I heard of him. And I went upstairs, and I told my wife, I was like, man, I think I really bombed that. All right. That's what I was going to ask, Scott. What was your initial talk? You tell this guy, is he telegraphing at all that you're onto something? Uh, that that you might have struck a chord with him, or is he just cold nothing. sitting there giving you nothing to make sure he's nothing. not manipulating? All right. Zero. And it was kind of, not that it was bothering me, because people do that to me all the time, which is totally fine. However, he wasn't even like, okay, that sounds good. He just listened. Uh, so I just put it all out there, the things that I was picking up. I went upstairs and I told my wife, I was like, he didn't give me any feedback. I think I bombed. Then, believe it or not, almost an entire year goes by and I hear nothing. And I kind of forgot about it until one day I get a phone call from a private investigator. And she says, hey, do you remember a reading that you did for a missing girl in California? And I said, yeah, vaguely. Um, And she jogged my memory. And she said, you know, that was recorded. And the uh, brother sent us the recording because we were working with him at the time on the missing person case. Um, and it didn't make any sense to us. <clears throat> However, uh, in the last couple of weeks, a box of evidence came forward with journals, calendars and other personal information about the missing girl. Uh, her name is Dina McCann. 
And after they went through this box of evidence and notes and all these other things, they found that what I was talking about was spot on. Not only that, but this box that had been lost to time for over 40 years had the initial maps drawn by Dina's father, who's since uh, passed away. And it had all the landmarks that I was talking about that the family really didn't know that their dad was looking into because they were so young at the time. They weren't really involved in the investigation that way. So it wasn't until a year later when this private investigation team got this information that my reading started to make sense to them. And then it was off and running. Um, They had uh, decided that if I could do that good of a job from my chair here in New Jersey, that I could probably do an even better job if I came to California. So they flew me out there. Um, I stayed with the private investigator in a spare bedroom. And for four days straight, we went out and I used uh, my psychic abilities. I used some paranormal techniques and I also used my my ability as a police officer to interview people um, and better understand what things were like back in uh, Lodi, California in 1981. So, well, I, I need to ask you really quickly. Yeah. Were you surprised that the police reached out to you, that they actually entertained what this guy had, had recorded and they, they thought enough about it to listen to it and keep that tape when nothing made sense to them? Yeah, luckily, the uh, the private investigation team that is on this, uh, they're very open minded and they're so willing to try anything to find this young lady uh, and bring her home that they're willing to entertain all of this, which was something that was very surprising to me. Yeah. But I I love the tenacity of a good team like that. And I always uh, have to go back to the fact that that's exactly what will get people found and bring them home is just somebody caring enough to keep pushing forward in any direction to find their loved one. So that, that makes a huge difference. So, so basically, all this evidence, yeah, making itself yeah. known now, suddenly all of these things are lining up with the details you were picking up on to, uh, to them at this point is undiscovered information. No way anybody should know this, which is giving them the insight that you must be in communication. Now, help our, our listeners understand as well. Are you getting this information from this missing girl are you getting this information from a spirit guide are you getting this information from zoltar on the beach where where exactly do you divine this the first bit of information i believe came from just my my intuitiveness i don't know how to explain it um no guide stepped in and gave me this information i simply closed my eyes and asked for the information and it came it wasn't until i got to california that i actually made contact with the missing girl who I know is deceased. I I saw her. She came through during a a reading for the family that that's still with us. And uh, she had a lot of amazing things to say. And during my travel there in California, she stopped me in a place that I did not know existed while we were in a car. I made my private investigator stop the car and I got out and I said, this is where this, this young lady lost her life. Unknowing, unknowing that it was the same spot that her father felt that she was brought to in 1981. I now, why would her woman. father feel that that would be the place her body would have been brought to? Does that not ring some bells that maybe dad yeah. knew way too much? Well, that's, we will be talking about some of that. Um, okay. There's there, This is a very deep and windy road that we're going to go, go down. Uh, and if anybody's interested in following that, they can find me on my social media and I'll be talking about that stuff. Um, 
We do have links to to Scott on today's program guide, so you can find him and find ways to follow his work as well. But go ahead. I know know this next 10 minutes is going to fly by on us, but go for it. So basically, um, when I stopped there, I got out of the vehicle and I did this reading and I spoke about it at length. And the private investigator who who had been driving me around, oh, by the way, her name is Tracy. She's fantastic. Um, She said, you're unbelievable. And after I was done, she said, this is the same spot that her dad thought in 1981 that that she would have been taken to um, where this could have happened. And that brought me to a spot where I was able to, we were out in Lodi, California, and the layout of this place, for anybody who's not familiar, is it is uh, vineyards, miles and miles and miles of vineyards. Um, so we were standing there, and I felt that we needed to go to the next place that I hit on, which is where we were headed to anyway when I stopped on on this particular spot. Right. And when we ended up when we ended up at the vineyard, um, there's a huge revelation that happens there as well. Uh, the first revelation at this vineyard, and this is where I feel that she probably is disposed of, um, which I will. I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to give away everything before we get there and have an opportunity to actually look for her. Sure. Um, but basically, through the points that I got psychically um, using good investigation skills and a, uh, and deduction and, and reasoning um, that vineyard is privately owned. And the people there have given us permission that if we get uh, a cadaver dog, that if the dog indicates that there is somebody there, that they will let us dig. And this is not a place where it's just trees and grapes there. This is a significant place with a structure. So um, with that, the team says that they have uh, a team of with a cadaver dog lined up and uh, we'll be going back again to look one more time to see if we can find her. Uh, and it's, it's you absolutely said when you first tapped in, it was more through intuition. Do you feel that it was like a sense of remote viewing in a way that, that was giving you yes. this information as though the, the great ethernet of the beyond was filtering through to you? Yes, it was. So for anybody who doesn't know, remote viewing is just when you close your eyes and you focus in on a space and you attempt to uh, name landmarks or objects that are nearby that could give you a pinpoint location of where you actually are. Now, remember, I'm in New Jersey. I've never been to Lodi, California in my life. However, when I closed my eyes, I named uh, I had felt that I was seeing a forested but very dusty area. I had seen and heard very loud cars and motorcycles which was really interesting to me as a point of reference i was seeing something about uh circus tents and i was also seeing something about uh trains and rail cars and these sorts of things and none of that made any sense at that moment but when i got to california and we started looking around it it all came together um very specifically about those sorts of things. So, um, and it's still going to play a big part moving forward as we go on. So yeah, that was just remote viewing. And then when I got down there over down over to California, um, and I sat at the dinner table with these folks, Dina herself came forward and she had some really beautiful things to say to her brothers who are the ones really pushing for the search to continue. So I, I know, especially opening up with the story I told with the officer and Tara Hout, this Spirits there points to the killer, points to herself, lets the police officer know without not holding up a rose and showing a butterfly and and a you know waterfall and all this obscure stuff that we always hear these mediums get. Why 
why is she not just coming forward and saying, Scott, I'm in the red barn and, you know, being direct. Why is it always this game of almost misdirection in a sense that, that, you know, here's a bunch of signs, put it together. You'll find me. Why is that? I wish that I could tell you, and it's part of the reason why I say that mediums and psychics don't solve these types of crimes. It really takes boots on the ground and understanding. Now, as a tool, as a medium or psychic, uh, giving these locations and reaffirming to the private investigators that they were in the right spot when they found this box and dad was in the right spot. And when I hear Dina say to me, Scott, they've passed by me so many times, I'm right here. And the family literally lives just a couple miles away. She And she did give us very spe- specific things to talk about. But when I asked her after the murder occurred, what happened next? She said, I don't know. This is where I lost my consciousness. And I'm not able to tell you any further. So she knew what happened to her from the point that she was abducted to the point where she was murdered. But after that happened, she said, I don't know how to give you any more information without just giving you clues as to where I am. And those clues were those specific things about the loud cars, the the circus tents, and the other points of uh, the dusty the dusty forest. If you've never been to Lodi, California, the vineyard is green on top where all the vines grow, and the bottom is just dirt, and they irrigate it to feed the grapes for the wine. So it's a dusty desert. It's a dusty Isn't forest. That- isn't that interesting? We've, you know, Cindy and I have talked about this, especially in this new series we're doing, Ghosts of Devil's Perch. And I'm not trying to make it a, a, a seamless plug here, but the fact that we think that in a lot of these places, it's not a full spirit you're communicating with; it's a fractal. Do you believe she has truly the consciousness, the the being that was this victim, has gone on? But what you're dealing with is this page from her mental journal that that it's that kind of element of who she is that you're actually tapping into dave you're nailing it buddy that's that's exactly what i think when i sat down with the family to do the reading she came right through she said all the things that would help her family understand that it's her lots of evidence that it was her i wasn't just making things up they knew like this is our sister right when i got out to the spot where she was murdered bits and pieces, fragments. So we used one of the uh, ghost boxes. We turn that on and we can hear the screams coming from the past, wherever this is. And what's super interesting is before one of the suspects passed away, this private investigation team had um, interviewed him several times, the person who we think is responsible for this. So we have his voice on recording. The woman who was driving me around from the from the private investigation team is not a paranormal investigator. She had never seen anything like this. So when I break out the the ghost box and I turn it on just to see if it will bring me any more information and we start hearing voices come through, this woman's mind melted because she could hear this man's voice coming through and saying this girl's name. And she was like, there is no denying that that is that same voice that we have recorded. I've spoken to this man at length. That's him coming through here. And during the investigation, this private investigator, she became very ill. We visited the, uh, the suspect's house. Uh, nobody lives there anymore right now. And uh, on the way up there, she became very ill. And I didn't say anything to her. I did not want to lead her on saying, sometimes when we deal with spirits that are negative, they can do this to us. I didn't say anything, but on the way to his house, my ears started to hurt. I became dizzy and it was like something very negative was trying to keep us from 
moving forward and finding the information we wanted. So um, after it was done, she actually, um, I didn't, I didn't film this part, but I'm sure a, cr a film crew would have um, on the way back from the house, we could pull over for a couple minutes so she could uh, go outside the, the car and, and hurl. <laughs> I felt really wow. bad, but I didn't want to. Yeah, it was really powerful. Um, so there are bits and pieces of these spirits that are lingering that are giving us the information that we need. It's just a matter of us to keep pushing and, and looking in the right direction. This is an ongoing case, Scott. You've got to come back and fill us in as this continues to unfold. And folks, I know what you're thinking. It sounds so far out there, but the, this Scott has connected on so many ways. I, I did a show uh, in my past iteration on my other program uh, way back when, and we spoke to Robbie Thomas, a medium out of Canada. And, and I threw him that night live on the show three different cases to give me an information on. One case was uh, the... Um, Casey Anthony and Kaylee Anthony case. He didn't really know what he was looking into, but he was connecting and he said, uh, I see a little body. She was buried. She's been dug up and moved somewhere else. And now I'm getting that she's underwater. And sure enough, they had dug in one place and couldn't find her, but they believe she had been there. And where do they end up finding her? They found her in an area where she'd been submerged. And when the water level went down, they found the garbage bag with her body in it. Um, he also talked about Jacob Wetterling, who is a, a very famous crime victim here in Minnesota. And when they did uncover him, it was eerily accurate. And it was many years later. It was eerily, eerily accurate to what Robbie Thomas had said on our show. So it sounds very big and innocuous sometimes to us because it's hard to perceive that this information exists out there and that this is going on. Um I want to know what happens as this story unfolds. And I know that you said that you don't usually work on murder or missing persons cases because they are ongoing active investigations. This one you, you stepped in for 40 years later. Um, if people want to reach out to you, Scotty, and they want help, uh, they, they want to try to make connections with loved ones lost. How do they get to you? And I'll make sure that we have that link in tonight's program guide as well. The easiest way to find me is uh, if you want to connect that way is my email. It's scotty, S-C-O-T-T-Y, N-J medium at gmail.com. And of course, they can always just go to any one of my social medias or just Google Scotty the medium and uh, all of my stuff pops right up. I'm right in the front. Scott, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insight into this case. And uh, please take care of yourself as well. I know that these things can take their toll on the people that are tapping in. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Thanks to everybody out there. Um, let's uh, bring Dina McCann home. That's what we're hoping for here. Amen. Keep us in the loop. Thank you, my friend. Amazing story. Uh, Scotty Davidson, an amazing guy I've had a chance to talk to, get to know, and just a lovely spirit. You could really feel the compassion and empathy from this guy dealing with what he deals with uh, in, in the field. And to remain that human after all he's seen in the military and in police work i give him a lot of credit um yeah crazy story we'll, we'll keep following up on that and i'm sure we'll have scotty back in the future to talk about other things hey folks it's time to be joined real quickly by a buddy of ours we've got uh jamie kaler joining us from the parents lounge live tuesdays you can find them on youtube or on their social media pages the parents lounge live where you can go if you are a parent and dealing with your own travesties and feeling maybe alone in this world and though you've lost your grip on sanity they are here to prove you probably have and they're also here to commiserate with you. Jamie, good to see you again, buddy. 
Hey, Dave slash Norman. Great to see you too, my friend. I love the shirt. Um, Well, I figured since today we're talking about, you know, paranormal and crimes and the Bates Motel, Norman Bates, and then I've got to pick a movie for my buddy, Jamie Kaler, that could just possibly add up to the type of quality I've given him in the past. Uh, I knew that I had the perfect movie for you. First, folks. It's time now for Upon Further Review. John Pranko will join us in just a few minutes as well, and we'll continue talking about police work, uh, paranormal, and, and such. But this movie, I remember watching maybe in an uh, in, in a state that my brain was a little cloudy, and I loved it uh, at that time in my teenage years, because this movie came out in 1981. I'm trying to skirt the issue. YouTube has very strict rules and regulations as to what you can admit to and you cannot. And uh, it might have been illicit back in the day. Uh, yeah. It's legal everywhere now. But, uh, yeah, I remember seeing this movie, and it was it's really the very first of its kind. Should we should we give people a little taste of what I, I forced you to I mean, made you sure. watch? Yeah, I think it's right. I think a taste is going to be more than enough. But, yeah, I would give them a little bit of a taste. It was um, here uh, and this. I'm going to forewarn you guys. This is one of the strangest trailers. And I don't know if you've seen the full trailer yet, Jamie, but here's uh, student bodies from 1981. from every horror film you've ever seen. You know me. First, I terrorize my victim by the telephone. use a hatchet. For this movie, I want something very frightening and deadly. Ah. Then I climb the stairs to surprise my victims. Why do they always live upstairs? This movie's a comedy, so killing's not so easy. Uh, uh, Sugarless. The movie's called Student Bodies, so I picked the typical American high school. This is Mr. Peters, your principal. Mr. Peters! You're naked! Yes, Toby. All these years I've been secretly naked underneath my clothes. Meet the rest of the faculty. The shop teacher, the guidance counselor, the janitor with the IQ of a handball. What's he doing? Sex education teacher. This is totally unnecessary, ugly, and gets in the way. Everybody's into sex. Last night he gave me a hickey right here. And your mother? She also told me that sex was bad and dirty, uh, but only with my father. 
With everyone else, she said it was great. I'm into murder myself, and student bodies are going to be everywhere. <laughs> Dead bodies down, Phil. 15-yard penalty. See student bodies. A killer comedy. So tell me, Jamie Kaler, did you like it? It made me dizzy just listening <laughs> to him. Um, it's always funny when a trailer, like nowadays, if you had a 15-second opening of like Paramount Pictures, dun -dun -dun, people will go click. Like right. never, everything's so, the jokes are so dragged out and telegraphed. Um, you know, I normally am the guy who's like, I loved it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, you're not always that guy. Let's be honest. Uh, let's be honest. I'm not that guy yeah, whatsoever. Yeah, um, I, it's so, I mean, it's always, is it dated or does it hold, hold up? I mean, I think if you could like go back in that time, it's, it's a fitting uh, tribute to 81 and to what it was trying to say from the year before about like every film. I saw all those films. I went to the movies to see all those films. I think horror and comedy, very tough, very mm -hmm. tough. And so for this one, didn't pull it off for me. Did wow, really? Not pull it off. I didn't. I didn't love it. I didn't love it at all because the jokes were so drawn out. Um, but I mean, what's your favorite of all time horror slash comedy? Can you think of one? Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, American Werewolf in London did it right for me. But with this Huggy, movie, but not as funny as horror. People right. always say that's a comedy, but it's, there's very little comedy. It's mostly graphic horror, which I love that film. Great. An another I movie like I liked. Dead, like a Shaun of yeah. the Dead. I think. Idle Hands. Comedy. And what? Idle Hands. Idle Hands. Super funny and really gory. And that's what's really, it was funny because you expect it to be, like, if it's going to be a comedy, I thought the gore should have been absolutely insane over the top. But there's very, honestly, I mean, there the, even has the little clip in there. There's no R rating until the one guy comes in and says, hey, you know, we want to be in R rating, so blank. And he swears right. and drops another bomb or something. But it's not like, because I remember seeing, like, Porky's that year, and you're like, I mean, watch Porky's now. <laughs> there's some graphic violence. That thing might oh, have yeah. a at this point. So it was. It felt a little tame for me. I felt like if you were going to go overboard, I think Scary Movie kind of uh, did the same thing and then went went overboard to to kind of. Well, obviously, Wes Craven came out with the Scream movies, which were kind of a comical take on the old Hollywood movie tropes. Then you've got the Scary Movie, which is then the take on the take of the Hollywood movie tropes. This movie, what I really appreciated about it, it was the first of its kind. It was after Airplane. And some of those movies, and you could tell that they were definitely going in on that Kentucky Fried movie vibe, right? I mean, of absurdity, the horror film thing first. But I think I even feel like Mel right. Brooks kind of. I mean, is Young Frankenstein after this or before it? It's before it. Uh, 
Yes, I believe it is before. Sure. John Frankenstein is really a horror film that's a comedy. Right. A, par- a parody, a spoof. Sure. But this one kind of was touching on all of the Halloween, Friday the 13th, My Bloody Valentine, My Happy Birthday. You know, any horror movie that had come out to these weird centric times, they made this. Terror made Train. This, uh, I think Terror yeah. Train was one of my favorites. Remember Terror Train? Oh, yeah. Yeah. David, David, David Copperfield. Copperfield. That one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, Carrie and then Friday the 13th, Halloween. I, mean, it was- I will say the one scene that stuck with me all these years from student bodies is when he's climbing the stairs, he's got rubber gloves on and he keeps stepping on gum and touching gum along the banister. And then at the one point you hear him just kind of psychologically break it. He goes, I'm going to kill the kid with the gum. Right. And he just kind of loses it. So I, I don't know, like I said, 1981, it was that kind of appreciative clean nature. So if you do like B maybe C level horror movie spoofs, I think people that love and live in that space. Sure. And also, it is really reminiscent of that era. Like, yeah. the, even like the innocence of like the kids talking, there's no cell phones. I mean, you remembered it. I Sometimes when you see a movie when you're younger, you're you're enjoying the nostalgia of re-seeing that movie. I don't, right. I've never seen it. So when I watched it, it was dated. And you're like, and also I've changed because my attention span is so much shorter because of the what we get now. Even <laughs> right. I catch myself. Exactly. Sometimes I'm watching like old movies like The Sting like the greatest film of all time. And I'm like, let's get through this scene instead of like basking in the glow and enjoying it. We, we, all of us have to be there now. It has to be now, 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 now. And so there is no reward for kind of getting lost in the moment and the time. So, I mean, if you want to, you know, open some Mickey's Big Mouths or some Bartles and James or a Zima and go back to the eighties and have a nice, you know, night of, uh, of, reminiscing and turning your phones off then yeah student bodies is uh it would you'll definitely laugh even if you're not laughing at the joke you'll laugh at um like imagine yourself on set with those people and you'll get a good laugh the tall skinhead was super funny he was super yeah he was amazing so one phantom no bueno five phantoms you got to watch this movie repeatedly where are you going to rate this right in the middle it depends on your mood depends on your mood like if you're in the mood for an old corny take on like, cause that era, if you grew up in that era, every weekend was a brand new horror film and they would right. just take whatever holiday was then it would be like 4th of July. It's the, yeah. you know, the 4th well, this, of July and they would kind of, do you think, yeah, this movie, do you think this is a, a, a group movie? Should you watch this with like five, six of your buddies that I are all from that era? Oh, I would okay. say it's the only way to watch it. And honestly, I would I would argue that psychedelic drugs would only help. All right. Jamie Kaler, Jason Gowan, hosts of the Parents Lounge, live Tuesday nights. You also do other special episodes, and people can keep up with you. We'll have a link up for the Parents Lounge on today's program and to find Jamie Kaler online. Jamie, thank you, buddy. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, brother. This week's show's Dan Cummins coming on from the Time Suck podcast. He's uh, really funny and kind of ventures into the paranormal world as well, and he's coming on to do the show. He's a great dad, and, uh, and it's also our birthday show, Jason and I. I have a birthday this week, and so today. Aww. I kind of feel like your parent because I put that seed and that little swimmer together, and pff, here you are. So here we are. Here we yeah, are. Daddy so Dave's proud of you guys. Love you, brother. <laughs> Talk Bye. To you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye, Jamie. All right, we've got more to cover. John Prink is going to join us in a few moments, but first, uh, let's talk about some of the cool stuff coming up right here. 
Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Maybe take a nap? Read a book? Or just show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However, there are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com P60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P60. It's time to take control of your life. Dave's here rooting you on, and if I can do this, you can do this. Let's do this together. BetterHelp.com slash P60. There's a link for it on today's program guide. Hey folks, tomorrow, our special recap episode, the Paranormal 60 presents this season on Ghosts of Devil's Perch, my special guest, Cindy Keza, as we look back on episode four, Shadow of Doubt, and we'll take a look at our next episode that is coming up, where we are going to be visiting the Dumas Brothel, one of the most famous and haunted brothels in America, also one of the longest running from the 1800s until 1982. This long running brothel uh, was in existence and Trust me, it has stories to tell. Our next guest is John Prinka. He's joining us now. John, thank you for your patience and hanging in with me all this time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited. <laughs> well, thank you. And, you know, this was great. You sent me an email early on to my uh, kind of kickoff of this show. Right. And I'm glad that we're able to connect. And I thought this would be a great pairing uh, for the episode, talking about um, kind of you know, the law enforcement and, and paranormal and how to bridge that gap. And more and more cops seem to be coming out of the paranormal closet about this. John, give just for our, our audience's background, give us a little bit of your background and work in, in law enforcement, if you would. Uh, yeah, 29-year uh, retired veteran started uh, in 1986. I was uh, kind of started out in New York City Transit Police, believe it or not, in Brooklyn. I'm originally from New York. Um, okay. When I came to my senses in 1989 and got tired of shoveling snow, <laughs> I went back out to uh, California where I had been stationed. I was also in the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and uh, during my time out in California, I had the opportunity to work at a variety of uh, police departments, small and large, uh, including the sheriff's office. And at that time, uh, if, any, if you know anything about the way California operates, um, they have uh, 58 counties in that, in that state. 
54 of them run a sheriff coroner concept. So the sheriff is also the coroner. I had the opportunity uh, shortly after I got to the sheriff's office, Solano County. Kind of interesting that uh, Scott Davis was talking about Lodi because I know exactly where Lodi is. In fact, I dated a girl whose family owns 400 acres out there and grows grapes for Gala Wine. Interesting. Between, uh, yeah, Interstate 5 and 99. So what he was talking about, I was absolutely familiar with. And in any event, it was an adjoining county, basically, that I worked in. Um, same sort of deal, um, an agricultural county, but I had the opportunity, uh, as I should say, to go into the coroner's office and work in there for four years. Um, it was a very interesting experience. They had they sent me down to Santa Ana, Southern California, to a two-week coroner academy. And uh, that was one of the most interesting experiences I ever had because it taught me so much about, you know, how, how the human body works, Right. We witnessed mm-hmm. a bunch of autopsies. I was in there for four years. We handled about 1,300 deaths a year. So we're not, it wasn't really big. But on the grand scheme of things, when you're the only guy in the county that I was, you know, you know that was me frequently, okay, uh, you're handling a lot of cases. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, got to, I got a chance to witness, you know, probably 800 to 1,000 autopsies over the period of time. Been on numerous homicide investigations, suicides, all kinds of deaths. And uh, what... kind of sparked my interest further into it. I mean, you know, going back, I mean, I had been into the paranormal and ghost related stuff, even as a small child growing up in the sixties and seventies. And then growing up in a a house that was built in the 1930s, that was incredibly haunted. I'm sure my parents and all, you know, all my friends and the neighbors in the, uh, in the area thought I was nuts because of the stories I was coming up with. Uh, Interesting because my, my, my dad built me a room in the basement of this house. They were WPA projects. Okay. This house was built in 1939, Long Island, New York, uh, small house, you know, 700 some odd square feet, not a lot of room. Dad mm-hmm. didn't want to go up there. So he built a house in the basement. Okay. So yeah, it was interesting. It was, it was interesting. All kinds of noises going on in the basement and, and where the way the stairs went down to my room, there was a small little vestibule that he created. One side was like, where mom had washer and dryer. My dad had his workbench. The other side of the basement basically was my room. My room was huge. And in the hallway was always on the ground was always this funky looking, what I can describe as a shadow of an H. It's about the best way to describe it. Didn't know what it was. It goes on and on and on and on. You know, while, you know, my parents are down and they put a floor down, the H comes through the floor. They put carpeting down. The H is coming through the floor. And every time I stood in that spot, the spot was cold. Didn't know what was going on. Then I'm starting to hear stories about the house that one of the original architects that designed the house back in the 30s, somewhere along the line, the story came up that the man had committed suicide and hung himself in the attic of our house, right? Now, as a kid, I my parents wouldn't let me go up in the attic. The attic was a crawl space, basically, you know, just a typical old house where you push the ceiling thing and suddenly you got to get a ladder to go up there. Totally unusable. It's just rafters and whatnot. But my dad had gone up there one day, and I asked him, I says, what do you see up there? Because he came down super quick, and he had this weird look on his face. He says, nothing, just a piece of rope. He uh, he knows nothing about oh. what, Yeah, I swear to God. He knows oh. nothing about what I've, I've been experiencing. So while I'm standing underneath that hatch – Looking up and looking down, I'm realizing that the hallway that I'm in in the center of the house on the first floor is directly above the hallway that is next to my room. And I'm starting to realize now that this is possibly a shadow of what a body would look like 
right? And I didn't just with a light shining on it. And I didn't discover this until much later. Now, you know, going on well, 15, 20 years now. Wow. When I was at the sheriff's office and I had been at a lot of hangings, okay, a lot of suicides where I had gone to the location and was looking in this and that and realizing that there's a shadow and it was the same type of shadow that I saw underneath a body when I was actually at scenes. And here's Holy what I as a 10, 12-year-old kid, not really realizing what it was. Now, it all of a sudden, now it's making sense, you know? Yeah. Those are just some of the things. I mean, it's just it, it just goes on and on from there. And I'm sure you've had a lot of guests that have some wild experiences. And um, it's it's been very interesting to me. And what, what I ended up doing once I retired is I, I decided that. Well, let me what, hold on one second, John. I, I do want to know, because uh, before we leap from uh, your experiences as a kid to past your your service and into retirement. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, when I was young, I lived in Illinois. I was in the uh, Explorers Club, which is like junior police Cub sure. Scouts, if you, you will, Boy it, yeah. Scouts. They're awesome. And, and I went into that because I, I really wanted to be a cop. Uh, lo and behold, I never knew my biological father was a cop. Yeah. Um, my great grandfather was a cop. So it was in my bloodline, obviously. I wanted sure. to be a cop. And one of the things that they did to kind of it was one of those shock and awe moments was they took us to see and witness an autopsy and took us to the Cook County morgue uh, yeah. where I met the coroner. And it when I walked in and when I say a cooler, it's like something out of Indiana Jones. This room was massive and body smell decked. Oh, no doubt. There they had me put smell. Yeah. They had me put camphor or like Vicks vapor rub under my nose. I never understood that. I never did that because if you do that, basically what that does is open your sinus cavity up and lets it all come in. Well, I, yeah, I think I think they were hoping that I was just going to smell the Vicks, but you no. smell that. No, I, I can. It was so pungent and horrific, horrible. Yes, but I I stayed in the back and I was just kind of absorbing this. And of course, sure. I as a kid had an interest in the paranormal. But as I'm walking through and they're shuffling everybody in to go into the room where we're going to watch this autopsy, I looked at the the guy that. Uh, coroner that was with us and i just said this place has got to be off the scales haunted and he just looked at me yeah. and kind of looked around and then slowly nodded and i said really and then he put his fingers to his lips and nodded again and i was like holy cow the cook county morgue and that stuck with me i think i did it for about another year and then just realized police work was not for me because i couldn't deal with the amount of death you guys have to deal with and and see uh that was overwhelming you said oh it's just 1300 a year that's a lot of death, That's a lot of. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when you put it in perspective, what I did is, I mean, you know, first of all, going into law enforcement, I, I think it's much like to, to me, it's not it's an occupation. Yes, but I think it's actually more of a vocation. It's a calling. Right. Not everybody can do the job. The people that do the job are special people. Any of the first responders, because we're seeing people at their worst. You know, there's a good percentage of the time that you're doing good work, right? And that you you do have good days. But, uh, you know, by and large, the majority of the time that you're working, it's not good. It's always bad. You're always responding to stuff. We're the crazy people that are running into trouble, right? Right. Firemen, cops, we're we're running towards the bad stuff. You folks are running away, okay? And when you put it all in perspective and you realize the amount of stuff that you've seen over the years, I I can't even – I don't even know how I made it through. I, I don't, I don't know. I just think it takes a special kind of person. Yeah. Um, particularly yeah. when you have 
particularly when you have, uh, you know, child deaths. I mean, I had my fair share of those. Those are horrific, you know, up to and including. I mean, we had one situation in the, in the morgue where, you know, there was a, a woman on the autopsy table that was 103 years old. And this was like back in 2000. I don't know, six, seven, eight, something like that. Well, we were, I was talking to the pathologist when he was doing her autopsy, and he was like, do you realize that when this woman was born, the president of the United States was Theodore Roosevelt? And I went, wow. Wow, yeah, you're right. I mean, and then I put it in, you go, how much has this person seen in all those years compared to what you and I have? I mean, what do we have, really? Color television, microwave oven, yeah, they went to the moon. Okay, it's, it's, you know, and we have the internet now. That's kind weird of weird how jaded we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're just, I mean, we, there's, there's a lot we missed. I mean, there's a, there's a whole litany of stuff that this lady saw that we didn't, we didn't see just because we didn't live during that period of time, right. you know, but um, now in your work with yeah. law enforcement though, did you, sure. and, and your fascination with the paranormal, obviously as a cop, you've got to walk a thin line. You can't just be open up about a lot of this because you don't want your credibility called into question at any point. But Correct. did you ever have what you would consider to be a paranormal experience? And I know you and I share the fact we were both on a paranormal theme show. I was in haunted hospitals. You were on, what was the name of it again? Um, oh, I was paranormal on emergency. Yeah. I was on day. Yeah. Paranormal. I did an episode both, of that. I filmed it in my both end. of our, both of our episodes might've been a little, grandized by tv and hollywood just a little bit but uh you know little effect put in but yeah what was what was your experience like in reality I, with with I the paranormal and police work yeah i mean it, that that one in particular stood out because it was one of the few times that i had had a uh an experience with a full-blown apparition in the morgue now the morgue is a creepy place anyway okay you the, frequently you know i was the only coroner in the county so I'm there at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, right in the middle of the night. I'm the only guy in the building. Yeah, you hear the bumps, the squeaks, the noises, and all that stuff. And you go, okay, you, you know, you, is it something upstairs? Is it something outside? You kind of, uh, you know, put it out of your mind, thinking this is not really happening. Well, one night, I got, logic, yeah, yeah. I mean, one night I was on call. I had gone home. I'd worked a late shift, something like I don't know, three to one, three p.m. to one a.m. And I was on call from one a.m. on. I had gotten a call in the middle of the night. I was just getting ready to go home, and I get a call of a car accident, a fatal out on uh, Interstate 80. Okay, this is Northern California. So I go out there, and I get to the scene. California Highway Patrol's out there, and I'm like, are you ready for me? Because if I, if I roll out, I'm coming out with a body bag and a toe tag. Um, it's a snatch and grab, toe tag, and we're rolling. I'm not going to sit out there and wait. Do your accident investigation, but as soon as we, we got to go. you know, I can't mm -hmm. wait out there all day because I'm the only guy in the county. I might have to roll to something else. So... They go, yeah. So I, I roll out there and I get this guy and this this man, this poor guy is, you know, horribly messed up from this car accident. And he, he is DOA. There is no doubt in my mind. Right. Right. I get him back to the morgue. And part of what we do is is weigh the body and we, we prep it for autopsy in the morning if that's what they were going to do. And in this particular case, we're going to do that because it was a smell of alcohol. We called it ETOH. I mean, you know, ethanol. Right. So we're, we're I'm prepping the body. So when the pathologist comes in in the morning, he can do his thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that included me taking a fin uh, fingerprinting and photographing this body and, and taking the man's personal effects out of his pockets. Right. So I open the body bag and I, I do the fingerprints and I take his photo and I've got all of his items in a, just in a clear big plastic bag, zip the bag back up. And our autopsy suite was a big room. We had space for, I don't know, three or four autopsies. It's not really big. But then there's a, a stainless steel door that's got a window in it. I open the door up and I 
put him in there. He's on a table and there's other bodies in there. Close the door behind me, walk through the autopsy suite, and there's another door that also has glass on it. And if you can picture it, it's the glass, but it's also got that metal mesh in there in case the window breaks that the glass right, doesn't right. break. So I walk down this long hallway and we're, I'm going past like we have a pathology lab and a histology lab, blood room, um, the, the, uh, our locker rooms and stuff. So it's a long hallway, probably, you know, a, a good 50 feet right in the building. And, and down on the left side, one of the last doors is the uh, door to the property room. So I'm, I open the door and I'm in there and I'm, I'm booking this guy's property. in. I'm starting to get a creepy feeling now because I'm hearing noise. And I'm like, what is going on? So I come out, and as I come out and close the door, I look down the hallway, and in the window is the full-blown, like, head and shoulders, like what we're seeing, only it's black. And I'm like, no way. I'm like, mm. I want this experience is how I thought to myself. Right. I want this. So I start walking towards it, and I'm doing this, right, moving, because I'm thinking, is this my shadow, you know, is the right. light? Burning? I'm thinking all kinds. I'm trying to explain it away. And it's not moving. It's dead still. And I'm like, is there somebody else in the building I don't know about? Because, I, I mean, you know, occasionally a deputy might come in or somebody else might come in, right? And I'm like, there's nobody else in the building. I'm literally the only person within the coroner's office. Now, upstairs from us was the jail. So it wasn't uncommon to hear noises of jail, del, you know, uh, cell doors closing, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's, there's no way. I walk, as I'm getting towards it, it sort of, I want to say it sort of dissipates. It moves back slightly, but then it dissipates. I open the door to the autopsy suite, and I it I don't see anything initially. But you know, you get the, the hair on the neck is going up, and you're like, "You're I'm there's somebody with me, but I can't see it at this point." Right. Well, I look straight through towards the the door that goes into the uh, the cooler, and I see the same apparition. And I'm like, there's just no, what is going on, right? I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm like, this is, in, in a way, it's awesome, but it's also terrifying at the same time because you don't know what you're really seeing. Is there actually right. someone sneak in here and is hiding and playing around with me? I get to, and I'm starting to see it, and in in as I'm walking towards the, um, the door to go into the cooler, it starts to fade out a little bit. And I open the door up, and it completely disappears. Now, I still feel that there's somebody in this room with me. Now, of course, I walk into the cooler and we've got a number of bodies in there. I've got, I don't know, you know, 10, 15, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the guy that was that's on the table that I had just rolled him in, I'm like, I got to open the body bag up now and look and say, because I, I had heard stories where people weren't necessarily dead on scene, but I was like, there was no way that this guy was not DOA. And I open the body bag up and I look and, and he's exactly as I left him. Toe tag on. He's DOA. The poor man's dead. So I I walk out, close the door, walk back, and I'm going back to my – I went back to my cubicle and it just stuck with me. I was like I didn't really understand what was going on. And, you know, how do you process that? So at first I was thinking, right. well – you know, maybe this guy was thinking, hey, what, you know, it, it was something as simple as what are you doing with my wallet and my personal effects? You know, maybe the guy was thinking, you know, am, am I dead? It's just I, I, I kind of processed it in my head and was like, dude, you're you're really here in the coroner's office. Unfortunately, yes, you died in that accident. I have your property, you know, and it's a matter of now me doing everything that I have to do to get the body prepped for autopsy, making phone calls and make notifications and things like that. So when I 
interviewed and did the show down in Miami. This was back in December 2018. The cameraman, after I, after I interviewed and told him this, the cameraman said, I think I know what happened. And I said, I said, well, you know, hey, I'm all ears, you know, look right, at these right. ears. I'm all ears, dude. Let me know. What do you got? He says, the man was not in front of you, as you think. He says, it was probably a lighting effect. He says, did you ever think that maybe he was behind you and following you all the way down the hallway? He says, because you said you had that creepy feeling the whole time, like somebody was behind you. And I said, I actually, I did. And that's, I, I didn't, I didn't think about that at the time because I was just focused yeah. on it at the time. You know, like when you guys are on, on, on a site and you're filming and you see something, it's just like, boom, you're going right towards it. You're not, you, you, you got to get the tunnel vision, right? You're not focused on what's behind you. And, right. uh, but it was a good, it was, you know, a good in theory anyway. And I, and I think that there's, that's a possibility. I don't know. I don't know, Dave. I just know what I saw that night uh, was very, was very real. I mean, it was nothing that I couldn't have even, you know, you couldn't have made that up. I mean, it's just, this was like, this is what I saw. And uh, to this day, you know, even thinking about it, I'm still, I mean, this is all these years later, still trying to process it. You know, like what, what actually was that, that I saw. And the only thing that I can come up with is, uh, you know, spirit came into the building with me. You know, I had the physical body, the spirit followed me in and was questioning, uh, you know, his death. You know, did, what what happened to me? I think he just wanted it was curious. I think it was a curiosity thing on his part. You mm-hmm. know, what, what happened to me? You know, what are you doing with my property? You know, can, is why am I here? Where am I? That kind of a thing. So, yeah, it's there is a there is a philosophy um, held by quite a few different religious beliefs that you physically stay or you spiritually stay with your physical form for up to three days after death, um, which is okay. why a lot of times the um, the showings, you know, the wakes would last yeah. two to three days. Yeah. They would give everybody a chance to come in and say goodbye. They would they would also not have the spirit be attached to the body as it was entered into the ground, you know, just some different aspects of that. It's just, it's fascinating to me, the belief system behind why we do what we do and could that have been it. Yeah. There's something to that. Uh, You know, I was raised, I'm my mom's Italian. I'm raised Catholic. And and it was always the thing I remember when, when someone died, my mother used to go over and open the window up, let the spirit, Mm -hmm. you know, that's right. Go out, cover the mirrors, open the windows. Yeah. Um, Cover the mirrors was a big thing. Yeah. And I, and I, realize that you know now i mean my house now uh, my wife and i are avid antique collectors so we do believe in you know attachment to things you know physical objects have have an attachment to them and some of the things we have in looking at them are antique mirrors and uh this current house that i live in uh i, I sent you a little you know a little deal on that last night on the you know, my email but uh yeah i mean when uh you start moving stuff around in the house and start uh redecorating a little bit. I mean, it was, for us, it's not like we were physically moving walls and knocking things out. For us, it was simply just painting, you know. But uh, our dining room uh, is a small space and had a – previously, the way the house was laid, this house was built in 1978. So it's not that old, but it's got a little bit of history to it. Right? It's a little 40 mm-hmm, years old. So, mm-hmm. You know, there was a wall that had been um, walled up that went through the dining room and into the kitchen. 
And uh, I think I mentioned last night, I'm, I'm also a musician, right? So I'm, I was actually, just before I came on the show, I was working on some music. I've got three songs we've got to work on, and i got more material i got to do. We possibly have to go back up to Nashville to go do recording. So that aside, here mm-hmm. I am in my, in my studio, and I'm a drummer, so I have my headphones on. And i got music playing through the headphones, and I'm playing drums. So I can't really hear anything other than my drums and the music I'm playing, too, because I'm learning these songs. And while playing... The way my studio is laid out, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm facing a wall and there's a long hallway that runs down to the left of me, which is kind of a galley style kitchen. And then there's a side door that goes. It's basically the converted garage. It's an in-law unit. We do okay. that on the floor. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm sitting there and I'm playing drums, doing my thing. And I hear this horrific bang. And at first, I, it sounded almost like someone hit the house, like a car hit the house. It was like that wow. kind of a bang. And a second after I hear the bang, I see... Um, fairly low, but it was like the running man. Like what you see on a, on a, on a sign when people cross the street was like that black kind of a figure thing. And it blew by me and it ran towards this location where the wall that's directly behind me where my drums are is actually the other side of the dining room, like where we were messing around. And I saw this black flash go by and I went, I did not, this was about a month ago now, three weeks, a month ago. I'm like, I, I did not see what I just saw. <laughs> and then as soon as I saw it, I stood up and I went, there is no way. And I'm thinking to myself, and it, I recalled that I had recently watched um, a show. Uh, there was a, a few folks. I wish I could recall the name of the show or, or the folks, but I had seen them previously on TV and they were, they were up in uh, Wisconsin. And the guy had something filmed in a hallway. He had his camera running and it was something like a flash that went by like that. But it wasn't like a, just a black blob or a white mist or anything. It was an actual like full blown apparition of a, of a person running from like right to left. And I had seen something similar to that. And I was so I, get, I got up and I walked through the house and the dining room was eerily. It was it was an eerie space. It was just kind of it didn't feel right, you know, and it was mm-hmm. um, uh, it was cold. You know, we have the air conditioning going all the time and, you know, down here because it's always, obviously it's always hot instead of constant 71 or 72 degrees. But this felt really cold, like you like you were almost like outside. And then I realized that in the dining room, we had a we've got um, a couple of mirrors set up. You're right. And I'm thinking, is this a portal now? Did we did we create something something unknowingly? Right. right? And and. My wife and I were talking about it. She goes, what do you think that bang is? I said, you know, you know, there's a lot of times people hear that noise. They'll hear a bang. And then if you look, and while we're watching a lot of the, the, the shows and stuff, and, and I've, when I've been on investigations too, you hear a bang and then you see something. I'm like, is this something that's moving through like a space-time continuum? And it's the reason it's hurrying me is because there's a the doorway opens quick and, and they got to roll through like Indiana Jones. You know? Wow. Good plan, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean it's like, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. It's, it's we've it, noticed that a lot on EVP too. Sometimes there's just kind of right, like it's like something's opening for this to be heard. Exactly. It's almost like yeah, it's like the portal is opening, almost like the door is opening, and you, you've got a split second to get the information out there. Which is why I'm thinking, you know, even with the EVPs and stuff, even the ones that I've caught on investigations that I've been on in folks' homes. Why is it only just a one word thing? You know, you're asking a question and you get one, two words and, and you're trying to identify who this person is and, and what what they're saying, why they're saying it. And could it be that 
there's only enough time to get one or two words out there. So the spirit is giving you the best and most information it can give you in that yeah. absolute split second it's coming out, which is why you just hear that one or two words. And now it's up to you to decipher what it actually is that they're saying, kind of put the puzzle together. So that's a, that's a good idea too. And, you know, I've also thought maybe it has to do with those fragmented aspects of who we are, that that piece doesn't hold a natural intelligence, but it has a limited spectrum of of ability for whatever that moment meant to it so yeah it's it's fascinating uh you know that's what keeps me driving forward we never really can pinpoint and say this is what's going on i love it i you know being a professional investigator you know i after retiring one of the things i wanted to do is get into you know the paranormal investigation is not that i had the time and uh, i had initially when i was still in california before i moved down here to florida I, i ended up uh uh, getting in with a, just a local group out of Alameda, California, and we went on a on a local investigation at an Elks Lodge, and there was quite a bit of activity in this Elks Lodge. Uh, in that there there was a couple homicides in there, so and there was you know members that were it was an all male cast at one point, but now the Elks um, with there's it's men and women, so there are a lot of the older members are not so in you know receptive of the women that are in the right. uh, Elks Lodge, so. Um, we had gone into, and it was my, one of my first experiences with an SLS camera. I was watching, uh, a couple of the investigators, uh, they were shut, they were demonstrating it to me and they had picked up some stuff, the stick figures and whatnot. And I was like, man, that is really cool. What is that? And I explained a little bit about how it worked. And I said, well, let me go walk around. We were in the, um, inside the outside, we were in the, uh, there was a stage area set up. Okay. And where they used to perform shows and whatnot, it was a big, big venue. So I'm walking around. I go, let me walk backstage and just kind of take a look because we had saw uh, these stick figures just wandering around back there. Well, I walk backstage and it's it's pitch black, right? Can't see your hand mm-hmm. in front of your face. And I have just a little tiny flashlight with me, just so I don't, you know, fall on them. I'm walking along and I'm looking at the floor, and I got this weird feeling. And I looked up, and standing right in front of me was what could be best described as, as a gentleman wearing, you know, the top hat coat and tail kind of a thing that they would wear. Sure. Back in the, you know, early 1900s, like during a show, just, just standing there. And I came out and I said, well, I might explain what I just saw to some of the other investigators. We walked out and we had the lights out and they said, well, just stand there. So they had, they mapped me out on the SLS camera. And they said, right now I said, they said, how do you feel? I said, well, my, my left shoulder was a little cold. He goes, well, that's because there's somebody standing with their arm around you. And, wow. Uh, well, what, what it was is I, I was, I was, um, I had been in the Elks Lodge. I'm a lapsed elk. Basically. I let my memory. Mm-hmm. Run out. I never, yeah. So I had gone in there and told him, I said, I'm a, you know, I, I was an elk. I was just a lapsed up. I had to renew my membership. So the minute I said that this, they're on the SLS camera. They said, you, you know, they, this guy apparently had put his arm around me and this figure was moving around and dancing around. I was like, that, and I don't see anything. I can feel it, but right. I don't see anything, right? Don't hear anything. Like sometimes you get that whisper in your ear, right? But mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't feel anything other than just a cold spot and the coldness on their shoulder. It was just really interesting. I mean, it's just, you could sit here That's all day cool. and just, you know, relay, the, you know, the tons and tons of experiences that you've had. You know, it's it's just I love it. I mean, the, I want to get into it more and more and more. As well, much as, as you do, and you have more strange experiences to share, John, come back and share with us, would you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. 
Thank you very much, John. And thank you for your service to our country and in law enforcement. Thank you. All right, folks, let me remind you, tomorrow night, the Paranormal 60 presents this season on Ghosts of Devil's Perch, Episode 4, Recap Shadow of Doubt, when we return to the Fink family home to talk about the case, what you found, what you saw, and what we didn't see. That's right, two interesting pieces of evidence that we missed but found in the raw footage. We'll show that tomorrow, and I'll be popping it on Cindy as well. This will be the first time she gets to see it, so make sure that you're here for that. It's easy to dismiss the paranormal as inaccurate observations, as misunderstanding rational moments. But as we proved today, when even the minds of law enforcement, trained investigators see there is more than just meets the eye, perhaps we all need to take a deeper look at the unseen world around us. I'd like to thank my guests today, Scotty Davis, John Prinka, for your service to our community and to the citizens, and for being brave enough to share what you did and your own experiences on tonight's show. Again, to my good pal, Jamie Kaler. He is uh, one of the hosts of the Parents' Lounge. Make sure you check them out live on Tuesday nights as well. Thank you for the laughter and the happiness that you bring to people. You are a hero too, my friend, and I appreciate you. Thank you all for visiting the Paranormal 60 and allowing me along on your journey. May the darkness here be just a little more light with the information that we share. And be brave, my darklings. Take chances, live life, and make a difference in other people's. We'll be back again tomorrow with the special edition recap look, and I'll be back Friday with more supernatural news with the Paranormal 60 news crew. We'll do all that right here on the best in paranormal programming. I'm Dave Schrader, your host, and this is my realm. This is the Paranormal 60. Remember to join me and the team on Ghosts of Devil's Perch every Sunday night, only on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus. And stay tuned. I'll be visiting Butte, Montana for the season finale. We'll be talking more about that and how you can join us for a special screening. That'll be soon right here on the Paranormal 60.